Aristotle is a greater philosopher, at least for me to wrestle with, than even Socrates. Plato, not too bad, but Aristotle is very tough. And, um, you know, one of the things I've always driven for in this show is to not disappoint the living crap out of you. <laughs> because, you know, if you hold people in reasonably high esteem, as I have many philosophers throughout history, and then you find out more about them, and it's like, ugh, ugh, <laughs> a little less than pleasant. I remember when I read uh, Judgment Day by Barbara Brandon, Nathaniel Brandon's wife, and learned about some of the um, corruption in Ayn Rand's circle, the affair and all of that. And I remember, gosh, I remember in my mid-teens, there was a note in one of Ayn Rand's books, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, or For the New Intellectual, or something like that. And it said, you know, Nathaniel Brandon is no longer associated with objectivism or Ayn Rand or anything like that. And I remember turning to my friend, who had first introduced me to Ayn Rand through Rush, the band Rush. And I said to him, oh, they had an affair. <laughs> and he's like, oh, come on, don't be ridiculous. And, and many years later, he did actually write me a message to say, you know what, I remembered that, and you were totally right, they did. And it was a, an ugly, uh, ugly matter um, that, that was wretched for their spouses. And, you know, not evil or anything, but definitely um, nasty in a way. And I also remember, this is just aesthetics and so on, but I remember seeing videos of Ayn Rand being interviewed and seeing that hard, cold, suspicious, goblin-eyed, I don't know, it was just a very jumpy and edgy and not in a good way, but like edged out kind of worldview that she seemed to have a sort of soul of the face was uh, pretty uh, pretty uh, tense and, and hostile and unpleasant. And I get it, you know, I mean, she received a lot of battering over the years, but I think it's really important to try and stay positive despite the battering because the positivity and the battering are kind of the same thing. Like if you're positive and do good things for the world, you will get battered, at least in the world that is. Not in the future, but certainly for now. So Aristotle is... The, the bait is the rational empiricism, in which he's infinitely better than Plato. And again, I've done a lot on Aristotle. I'll link the show in the notes below, a longer show on Aristotle, so I'm not going to go into his theory of ethics too much and so on. But his empiricism, after you come out of the fetid brain fog swamp water of platonic ideals into the clear highland uplands with the blue skies and the the vivid air of Aristotle's empiricism, it is like crawling out of the womb of a devil into a heaven of benevolent sense data. So for me, it was, you know, to consider, continue the analogies, like a, a storm-tossed foggy sea being cast upon, finally, some dry land with some fruit and uh, meat. And so Aristotle uh, loved him. Uh, and then, you know, as you read further, uh, okay, there's things that I have some issues with. So let's start with a little biography. He was born in 384 B.C. in Stagira, Greece. Now, his father was a court physician. Now, just so you understand, if your father is a court physician, you might have a little bit of challenge, or it might be quite challenging, to oppose the government, uh, to question the morals of the government. So, just wanted to mention that. And again, like a lot of philosophers, Aristotle lost his father young. It is a real pattern, which I talked about earlier. So, his son... Um, after Aristotle's father died, his son was raised by a guardian. Now, I guess his brilliance was recognized at the age of 17. Aristotle was sent to Plato's Academy in Athens. Now, he stayed there as a student and later as a teacher 
for about 20 years or so until Plato died in 348 BC. When Speusippus succeeded Plato, being in charge of the academy, Aristotle, ah, you know, it's not particularly known. There's hints either way. He either left just because he wanted to change, or he left because he felt he'd been passed over to be in charge of Plato's academy. And he left to tutor uh, Alexander the Great when Alexander the Great was very young in Macedonia. And he ended up returning to Athens in 335 BC. And when he returned, I guess he didn't take over Plato's academy, but he founded his own school of philosophy called the Lyceum. He taught there for a dozen or, or 13 years or so. Now, boy, it just, it just seems like just about every philosopher, you can read the biography of uh, Francis Bacon for more on this, or oh gosh, John Locke or, or other people. But when you succeed in having an effect in philosophy, uh, the blowback is inevitable. The potential energy is the elevation of mankind. The kinetic energy is the blowback of those whose interests you've harmed by elevating mankind. And so when Alexander the Great died in 323, then there was a lot of, of bigotry or hostility towards uh, Macedonians that came out in Athens. And what happened was, again, just like Socrates. Uh, look, <laughs> Plato had his own particular issues. Obviously, he was uh, he was he entered into politics in Syracuse. He ended up being sold into slavery and was only rescued because one of his former pupils ponied up a couple of hundred bucks to uh, to liberate him. So he he had a pretty pretty rough. Uh, getting involved in politics for a philosopher is usually a pretty one way uh, trip to uh, the gallows or the Tower of London or. Um, exile, if you're lucky, and it's all it's all very, very rough indeed. I mean, Dante Alighieri was also uh, a uh, certainly a, a theologian and a poet, and uh, he had to flee. It's it's just very. Well, my ancestor William Molyneux had to uh, flee persecution and so on. So it's just an inevitable thing that that happens. Uh, success is failure, and uh, and failure is success. It's this kind of true in the history of philosophy, that if, if you succeed, you will be attacked. And if you fail to be rational, you will succeed because you serve power. So failure is success, and success is failure in the realm of philosophy, at least until hopefully not too long from now. I think we've got a schedule for about 15 minutes from now, so just uh, be, aware, be alert and be aware for that. So when Alexander the Great died, and this hostility and rage towards Macedonians erupted, Aristotle, of course, had these very strong connections to Macedonia. Uh, he um, was was accused and charged with impiety. And he, you know, Socrates stayed. Aristotle said, I will not allow Athens to sin against philosophy twice. And he fled to a family house in Chalkis, where he spent a year there and then, and then died. Now, this is the wild thing about Aristotle, is that almost all of his work was lost you know, I, uh, I'm i sorry for the little bit of emotional back vocals here, but just the idea that Aristotle could have been lost, it fills me with, like, unbelievable pain. <laughs> so, I, you know, I can't even think that much about the Library of Alexandria because so much was lost. So, after the fall of the Roman Empire, 
almost all of Aristotle's work was lost. Now, who saved the fundamental empiricist and rationalist of Western philosophy? Who ended up providing the great medieval counterweight to Neoplatonism? Well, our good friends, the Arabs. The Arab philosophers such as Averroes, and we'll talk about him later, um, they saved these works and kept them, and then they began to return later in the uh, Dark Ages to the West. And the, the great tragedy is Aristotle was considered a great writer. And what do we have? Well, some notes uh, of his, some notes of his students, and their bare bones. It would be like getting notes of mine about a speech rather than the speech. That's, I mean, I think that would be kind of tragic. I think I'm fairly good at getting these ideas across in an engaging and, and deep and entertaining manner. And so, oh, yeah, we, we just got the bare bones. And trying to get Aristotle back is like trying to figure out what the dinosaurs looked like from one thigh bone. So, Aristotle versus Plato is really one of the most foundational differences in philosophy. It's the difference between humility and vanity, between consistency and arbitrary self-aggrandizement. So, Aristotle wasn't just a guy who was into philosophy, which is obviously important, but he was great at mathematics, and and this, of course, is, is where he's... Uh, very similar to some of the later philosophers, uh, such as Blaise Pascal, who were fantastic at mathematics. Pascal's wager didn't come out of nowhere, and Pascal was recognized as a mathematical genius at the age of 12 and proved incredible theorems. And, uh, well, but, of course, Pascal only became, uh, only turned to philosophy and abstract reasoning and religion and theology uh, after he almost died on a bridge. Well, we'll get to that when we, we talk later. So Aristotle studied science, he studied mathematics, and Aristotle, uh, fantastic at at, uh, communication and analogies. So Aristotle said, look, you've got to to study nature. If you want to understand the world, you've got to study nature, whereas Plato was infinite disco bong mirror of the soul. You You just go in and you look inside yourself and the truth is within and you go deep and you find the forms and, you know, then then you know everything for all time in absolute perfection and you can't ever dredge it up from the soul of the forms and put it into the mere bald, bare-faced, crappy, rusty, rotten reality. And yeah, so, so Aristotle said, if you want to learn about the world, go look at the world. If you want to know the truth, the truth is about the world. The truth comes to us through the senses. The truth is about the world. So you go and understand things about the world. And so, yeah, Plato was like, to hell with empirical investigation, the truth is within, and Aristotle was, no, no, that's, you know, he had great critiques of the forms, which you can look up, and I talk about in my other presentation on Aristotle. Now, Aristotle also, fantastic at, I mean, the forms are kind of blobby. <laughs> Sorry, that's not, that's not particularly uh, helpful. So the forms are like stars, and classifications are more like the constellations, you know, where you tell stories by drawing lines between the stars. And Aristotle was fantastic at classification, right? So you, you think of that sort of tree, right? Like a, sorry, not like a tree tree, but like a hierarchy tree and so on. You've got one thing at the top, it divides into two things under each of those two things divide into two things. 
So you've got, you know, animal, uh, lizard, and then you've got uh, various kinds of you know, skinks and geckos and you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and so Aristotle was fantastic at creating categories and subcategories. And believe it or not, I mean, it was Aristotle. I mean, he gave us the three laws of logic, right? identity, non-contradiction, and uh, either or. And he also divided philosophy into... I mean, the stuff I've talked about forever. Epistemology, uh, metaphysics, ethics, or these were all divided in uh, Aristotle. And, and it took Aristotle to divide them, in my opinion, because he was so good at dividing nature that dividing philosophy made sense. And because the forms are kind of blobby and unrelated, right? the form of the table, what does it have to do with the form of a chair? Is there a form called furniture? Is there a form called wooden furniture? Like the forms go on forever until... Like, is there a form for the chair that you're looking at, or is it just part of a general classification of chairs? Is there a form for chairs that are currently being sat in? Are there a form? Is there a form for chairs that still have residual fart smells from eating Indian food? Like, if, are there for, like so the forms are just kind of blobby, and uh, they're circles in a void, in a sense, uh, whereas Aristotle is, no, 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 there's a hierarchy of things, right? There's matter, there's living matter, and there's non living matter. Of the living matter, there are mammals, there are amphibians, there are lizards, there are birds, there are, you know, and, and there are animals that used to exist in the past which don't exist now. And uh, among non-living matter, there's a vapor, a vapor a liquid, a solid, there's, a, you know, you just go on and on, right? There's man-made things, there's non-man-made things. So he's just Mr. Subdivision and Categorization, which you can't really do with the forms, because every layer of categorization of the forms might have its own form, and when you start to end up with infinite forms, yeah, kind of start to question <laughs> what the hell the purpose of the forms is, if it's just, well, every little thing you do is magic, right? Boy, now that song stuck in both of our heads. Well, only if you're over a certain age. So, yeah, as Aristotle died in his family house in, in Chalkis after uh, fleeing from these trumped-up charges of not believing in the gods of the blah-blah-blah, and now this happened to, uh, gosh, yeah, so there was um, a Hobbes, a nature red and tooth and claw guy. Uh, he was accused of atheistic writings and was investigated and faced great danger and ended up having to burn uh, some portion of his own work as a result of all of this back in the days when you could burn things and they would actually be gone. So, yeah, Aristotle is so great in so many ways and is the foundation of the scientific method. Um, it, we, Francis Bacon formalized it and and so on, but, and, and Francis Bacon again also attacked on trumped up charges of corruption and ended up being locked in the tower and then retreated from politics after he was stripped of his title and as he was chief, he was chancellor of the exchequer, I think in the UK and, and fled and, and was wretched and then turned to philosophy. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the sort of turning away from politics to pure philosophy is, uh, not something that is without precedence given my history, uh, my readings of the history of philosophy. And of course, this is all the way back to my graduate school thesis. So uh, here's a quote from Aristotle. And indeed, the question which, both now and of old, has always been raised and always been the subject of doubt, viz. what being is, is just the question, what is substance? Now, I don't like the word substance 
for concept. I really don't like it because substance is something, well, it's one of these uh, words with many meanings, right? Uh, the substance of the matter, the most essential part of the matter. Substance is a thing that has tangibility. It's, it's a substantial, which is very important. I mean, so I prefer uh, instance uh, and, and concept. My concepts are imperfectly derived from instance or, or entities, but I don't like the, the way it used to be talked about or some of the translations in the ancient Greek is particulars and universals. Particulars are uh, the things themselves, and the universals are the concept that unites qualities they share in common. So the instance is a horse, and the uh, concept or the universal is the category horse, right? So uh, the, the type of or, or, or kind of thing or the universal attributes of a thing, right? So Aristotle would refer to them as particulars and universals, or again, that's the traditional translation of it. So uh, Plato, of course, as we've talked about with his concept of the forms, believes that in another dimension, the universals, the forms, the concepts, they exist in and of themselves. They exist in and of themselves. And in fact, they are the real existence. They are the true existence. And they exist independently of any individual instance, right? So the concept tree exists independent and, and what's of any particular tree. And of course, what's not generally talked about but is true is that the concept of the tree can include characteristics that deny any individual tree. Because if it didn't, right, if, if as I talked about before, if tree is the tree and the concept of tree is the shadow cast by the tree, then the shadow can't have anything that's not in the tree. Or the shadow can't have anything. I, we talked about the guy, uh, the statue of David, and the shadow has a hat on it, right? There's no purpose, no political purpose, no purpose of power, which human beings seek. The will to power is foundational to us being the alpha predator of the planet, the, the apex predator of the planet. The, the, there's zero point, absolutely no point. In fact, it goes against political power to say that concepts can't ever contradict the instance because the rulers have characteristics which contradict those who are, who are ruled. And the slave owner has characteristics which contradict the slave. And the male has moral properties and political abilities and rights that contradict the female. So the again, purpose of power, create a rule, create an exception, create a rule, create an exception. And so if you have concepts can never contradict the properties of any individual, then you say something like human rights, which we'll, we'll get to later when the so when human rights comes up. It's not too, uh, not too great a concept in the ancient world. So say human rights. Okay, so human rights. Um, you can't initiate force and you have to respect property rights, right? That's the general common law, right? Okay, so human rights, uh, that applies to every human being. There are no human beings to whom that either does not apply or the opposite applies, right? That's just UPB. UPB is, okay, if you're going to define human beings as this and you say human beings have properties... Uh, and that there are obligations universal to all human beings, and they have to be universal to all human beings. This is almost a tautology, but it's basic. UPB does not allow for the opposite exception to the general moral rule that is the source of political power. That you can't talk to God, but, oh, that guy with the hat on can. You can't initiate the use of force, but the king can. You can't impose a hypothetical social con uh, contract on people, a la Hobbes, but the king or the president or whatever can. So you understand this, this wrinkle or this reversal is essential 
for political power. And so every philosopher who attempts to refute this exception for everyone in power, right? That, that all human beings have moral obligations, but the ruling class has the opposite morality. But they're still human beings. I mean, if you were to say all human beings are subject to gravity or all human beings are mortal, except for these human beings are immortal, who are immortal, well, you'd say, well, you, you can't have both. You can't have both. If you say all human beings are mortal, but there's this group of human beings who are not mortal, then they're not human beings. They would be gods or demigods or something like that, or vampires, but they'd be something other than human beings. So when you are an empiricist and you are a scientist, what you have to do is you have to create universal rules that organize and classify individual instances, right? So if you have a forest and in the forest is a rocket ship, then you would say that the rocket ship is in the forest. Now, can you define a forest as a group of trees that contains a rocket ship? No, because you can have a forest that doesn't contain a rocket ship and a forest that does contain a rocket ship is like a human being that contains a knife, <laughs> like somebody's just stabbed you and there's a knife in your body. You can have a human being with a knife in its body being stabbed, but a human being is not defined as having a knife in its body. So creating the rule without allowing for the instance to, to contradict it, you say all matter is subject to gravity except for this group of matter which has the reverse. Again, you can't have both. If you say moral obligations accrue to all human beings, except for these human beings who have the opposite, well, again, it can't possibly work. Because what you're doing is th just think of a sort of a Venn diagram, like the circles, right? So mammals is a small circle within a larger circle called living beings, right? Things that are alive. And in that is mammals and amphibians and right? fish. So you have a larger concept called things that are alive, and you have a smaller subcategory called mammals. Now, all mammals are alive, which means that the smaller circle of mammals must be, logically, and it, it must be within the larger circle of things that are alive, because one of the definitions of mammals is things that are alive. So if you have a larger category, I'm sorry to be so repetitive, it's really important. Larger category, things that are alive, smaller category, mammals. Boom, done, right? Small circles inside the big circle. Can't ever be outside it. Can't even overlap it. They can't be one mammal that is part of the definition of things that are alive that is not alive. And we're not talking about a dead mammal. We're talking about the definition of a mammal, things that are alive. So saying that the concept can include both rules and the opposite of rules for its members is to say that you have a large circle and you have the same instances both inside and outside the circle. It's like saying living things and some mammals are inside the circle called living things and some mammals are outside the circle called living things, but all mammals are living things. And I'm telling you, a two-year-old could see the flaw in that. A two-year-old could see the flaw in that. I mean, you go to a two-year-old. If you were to say to a two-year-old, all candy tastes great but some candy tastes badly. They'd look at you and say, what? What are you talking about? What are you talking about, Willis? Like, what are you talking about? Or if you say all candy tastes great, but some candy tastes terrible. All fish live in the ocean, but some fish live in the air. 
We'd say, which is it? All human beings must respect the non-aggression principle, but some human beings must initiate the use of force. You you see how creating this brain-bending reversal in concepts is the portal to hell for oligarchical power, for violent power. If all human beings are defined as like virtue for people is to not steal, but then there's a group of people who must steal. All people must avoid stealing. All people must respect property rights, but these people must violate property rights. Again, you can't be inside and outside the larger category. If 100% of you are defined as within the larger category, all human beings are mammals, but some human beings are vapor. All human beings are mammals, but some human beings are amphibians. All human beings must refrain from stealing, but some human beings must steal. Now, of course, there's lots of you recategorize it and you claim it's voluntary, but you understand, this is why I keep hammering, this is why I started my very show, very first video show, 16 years ago with this whole thing. So it's re- I just, again, I hope it's not too repetitive, but sometimes when you have a lot of propaganda, repetition is really, really important. And again, so we talked about this before, Plato, for Plato, the instances, the the things themselves are just imperfect, shaky shadows cast by the perfect forms themselves. Like looking into a, looking at clouds on the surface of a rippling lake, you can't really see the clouds that well. So what does true knowledge mean for Plato? So true knowledge is knowledge of the forms and nothing else. There's no true knowledge through the senses. There's no true knowledge through empirical observation. There's no true knowledge in science. There's no true knowledge in experimentation. The only true knowledge is knowledge of the eternal, perfect forms which can contradict everything that you know and contradict themselves because consistency, it's a higher consistency, which means an inconsistency. Just any time you hear higher, just think opposite. So, for Plato, of course, sense data, right? I mean, it, we actually have dozens of senses, but the traditional five, right? We have balance and, and things like that. But the traditional senses, they're just going to mess us up. They're going to confuse us. They're going to mislead us, right? The senses can only be known, sorry, that, that true knowledge is knowledge of the forms, and the forms can only be understood through introspection, through well, he would call it reason, but it's not reason that comes from empiricism, and it's it's not reason or hypotheticals that can be overthrown by sense data. Remember, the higher realm simply means accept the contradictions that enslave you. There's all the higher realm, higher purpose, nirvana, the the forms, the collective, the country, the group, that whatever whatever collective is being talked about as having more importance than the individual. The high, that you hear higher realm, larger purpose, social contract, all it is is accept the contradictions that enslave you and don't question them. Because if the forms, if the abstracts, if the ideals have to be perfectly consistent and in accordance with reason and evidence, then they don't get to have any properties that contradict the properties of any of their members, which means everybody has to be moral and you can't have a traditional state. So when people tell you to give up the census, they're telling you to give up your reason and your freedom and your equality. 
it's a higher form of equality to be enslaved, right? That's what they say. Higher form just means contradiction. Now, as we've talked about before, Aristotle, no, rejects this theory of forms. So Aristotle, his case is that, no, 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 the, the forms don't exist, exist in some spiritually tangible manner, in some other dimension, some other plane. They do not exist independent of the instances. There's no concept called the forest that, and let me just, for, I know a forest is like undergrowth and, and dead leaves and, and animals, but just like a forest being a, a copse, maybe a group of trees. Let's say forest is a group of trees, right? He'd say that the concept forest does not exist independent of the individual trees. Now, Aristotle would say that the tree has an essence or a form, and all trees have this essence or form in common. But if all of the individual instances of all the trees in the world are erased, then there's no existence, existence, not in your mind, but existence of the concept forest. So for Plato, all the trees in the world can be destroyed. There's still the concept of forest that exists, that is real, more real than the trees. Aristotle says, no, no, you can still have in your mind the concept forest, but it doesn't exist outside of the individual trees. So where does essence lie? Now, again, they didn't, sorry, again, I say, like, they didn't know atoms. They didn't have universal physical laws. They didn't, right, know the sun was the center of the solar system. They didn't have, obviously, any understanding of, of germ theory, of atomic theory, of quark theory, of uh, quantum physics. They didn't have any, any clue about this. So where does the essence of something lie? Well, we know now it lies in the union of matter and energy. It lies in the fact that the carbon atom behaves like a carbon atom everywhere in the universe. And a hydrogen atom, which God is enormously fond of, God, is, God loves hydrogen and beetles. Hydrogen and matter and beetles in, because there's so many beetles, right? It's an old saying from, a, I think, a uh, biologist. Uh, I don't know whether God exists, but if he does, I do know he's inordinately fond of beetles. So water atoms, oh, sorry, water molecules, they exhibit the same behavior across the universe. That, so they didn't know what, what's the essence of something. The essence is our both instinctive and then scientific understanding that matter behaves in perfectly predictable ways. So because they couldn't pull apart human beings and find the carbon atoms, and they didn't know about the oxygen atoms, uh, oxygen molecules, uh, O2, right? Yeah. So they didn't know about CO2, so they didn't have all the propaganda about the world being on fire. So th when they're struggling to talk about essence without knowledge of atoms and universal physical laws. That not only do the atoms behave with perfect consistency across the universe, but the laws operate with perfect consistency across the universe. There's no place where gravity doesn't work. There's no pocket where there's anti-gravity. So Plato said, well, what's the essence? The essence is in another dimension. And Aristotle said, no, 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 the essence is bound into the matter of the thing itself. So we can only get the essence by studying things. But for Plato, you could only get the essence by studying your own mind, by introspecting and what he called pure reason, which is not reason because it's not empirical. Aristotle says you want to find the essence of something, you cut it apart, you study it, you classify it, you look for things in common. You look for the essence in the matter. And, and in that he was right. 
because the essence is in the matter, but he just couldn't see the atoms. He didn't have the theory of it, right? Plato says the essence is in our mind and it's introspection, and through that mind portal we get to another dimension where we see the purity of things, which is nonsense. It's completely false. And I'll get to why about that, which I can't believe it took me this long for the argument, but uh, we'll, we'll get there in a sec. Where is the definition of a thing? It's in the atoms and the physical laws, neither of which they understood in any particular, well, certainly in any modern way. So, because Aristotle rejects Plato's metaphysics that the ultimate reality is a chaotic and internal portal to the world or the realm of forms, which can completely contradict everything to do with the senses and everything to do with each other. Right? So, again, in, in a rational formulation, that which contradicts if you make a claim about the nature of reality that contradicts the evidence of the senses, your claim is wrong. This is basic science. It's not me. It's basic science, right? Modern science, 400 plus years, Francis Bacon and onward, although Aristotle was certainly on his way that way. Whereas in the realm of the forms, you can have these contradictions. And again, these contradictions are the foundation of political power. You can't create laws, but I can. Well, aren't we both human beings? All human beings, no one is above the law. As I say, that's a formulation. No one is above the law. But that, that means everyone must be able to create the law. Because some people can create, some people, the law is that they can create the law, and other people, the law is they can't create the law. So if everyone is above the law, then everyone can create laws. And everyone can impose laws on everyone else. But that's only allowed to some, right? <laughs> right? So again, create the rule, create the exception. That's the form of platonic idealism. That's the perfect, that's, that's the purpose of platonic idealism, is to carve out exceptions for those in power and have you believe it's a higher reality, man, it's a higher truth. Higher truth always ends up with you on your knees and sometimes up against a wall. So because Aristotle accepts that the essence or the forms or the concepts that unite things can be found within those things, how do you find the forms? You go look in the world. You divide, you ask questions, you cut things up, you classify. Empirical investigation, the evidence of the senses, that's how you get to the forms. So... I'm going to yeah, borrow one of these analogies. Uh, it's fairly famous, but it's mentioned by Stephen Law. So, so Plato, and this is back to Occam's razor, right? Parsimony, right? Don't multiply explanations unnecessarily. So Plato has at least a two-world theory, right? There's the world of the sense data, and then there's the world or the universe of the forms. The universals exist in the realm of the forms, and the instances, the things themselves, exist in the empirical world. Now, Aristotle doesn't require a whole other universe where contradiction equals truth. And a concept that describes something can include the opposite of what it describes. So that's just, do you need two universes to explain? No. And of course, Aristotle was right. Aristotle, the essence of things, is embedded. Now, the concepts, of course, of trees are not embedded in the trees, like some ghost or dryad living in the trunk. But the concept comes from the behavior of matter and energy in the world. That's why we have concepts. That's why we exist, because behavior of matter and energy is universal and perfectly predictable. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, the electron location versus uh, direction or anything like that. I'm talking about it at the level of sense data. Uh, and again, when I say sorry, when I say perfectly predictable, I don't mean that you know exactly which way the firelight is going to flicker or anything like that. But 
although we can't predict it, we know that it is not behaving of its own free will. We know that it's not got a ghost that can randomly move it in various places, right? So if if you want to get a, a decent analogy, I hope I've explained it fairly well. Here's a decent analogy for Plato versus Aristotle. And again, all philosophy is divided into these uh, two things with a third category called UPB, which, you know, I'll probably include myself in the history of philosophy at the end. <laughs> Hopefully it's a new beginning. So I love cooking with my daughter. Wait, let me rephrase that. I love cooking alongside my daughter. So uh, what we do is you make your pastry dough and you roll it out on a flour-covered baking tray or something like that, right? And then what you do is you get your little cookie cutter, right? And you get your little little pastry mat. Let me say you're making gingerbread mat, right? So what happens is you, you press the cookie cutter and you get these gingerbread mat. Now, again, if you zoom in, each one of them is slightly different, but they have the general shape of the cookie cutter, right? Now, then you, you cook the gingerbread man. Well, first of all, you'll clean the cookie cutter and you put it in the drawer and then you bake the gingerbread man. You eat the gingerbread man and the gingerbread men are all gone relatively quickly if I'm around, but the cookie cutter is still sitting in the drawer, right? So the cookie cutter, the form... Right, so the cookie cutter is the form and the individual gingerbread men are the instances. So you just you've eaten all the cookies, all the cookie all the gingerbread men, but the cookie cutter remains in the drawer, right? So Aristotle would say that each instance is both the matter which is particular to the individual and the form which is what they have in common. So there's nothing else that exists like the cookie cutter. There's just what you make. So let's say you don't have a cookie cutter and you just make the gingerbread men by hand, right? And then you eat all the uh, gingerbread men, right? Their, Their form has now gone as well. There's no cookie cutter in the drawer. So through that process of saying... Truth is the relationship between universal arguments in our mind and the evidence of the senses. Right? So if I say that's a tree, I'm making a truth claim about something in the objective world. And if my truth claim conforms to what is going on in the objective world, then it's a true statement. If I point at a cow and say that is a tree, and a cow is a mammal with four legs and four stomachs that produces milk or whatever it is, right? Well, a tree doesn't have four legs. A tree doesn't produce milk. A tree is not a mammal. A tree doesn't have horns. A tree doesn't use uh, a sperm and egg to reproduce. Seeds and right sunlight and earth and water. So tr- well, what is true? True is when we have a conception in our mind that we claim represents an objective truth, does it actually reflect an objective truth? If the claim that we're making is accurate to what we're making it about, if I point at a tree and say it's a tree, and my definition of a tree matches the properties of what I'm discussing, or what I'm pointing at, then it's a tree. I'm accurate. And again, this is something that human beings are the only creatures that you point at something and you follow what's being pointed at rather than just looking at the finger, right? 
And, and you, if you've been around kids, you can see this process happening. It's an incredible process to watch happen when you're philosophically inclined or just curious about the life of the mind and its relation to reality. If you're curious about these things, I mean, I remember we have a skylight and my daughter, there was, I was carrying my daughter when she was very, very little. And she pointed as I was walking down a darkened hallway through the skylight to a beautiful pale blue moon in the sky. She pointed up and she said, moon. I looked up at the moon and there it was. I looked down at her beautiful face and in her clear liquid eyes were two tiny little moons. It was an amazing moment, a beautiful moment. Because the moon that she was pointing to and identifying accurately in the world was also the moon that was in her mind through her eyes. It was an amazing thing. Now, so a couple of the disappointments about Aristotle. Uh, justified slavery. Straight up, justified slavery. He said, uh, you know, well, social norms have to reflect what's natural, man. And so, yeah, if some people are naturally suited to be slaves, says Aristotle, then, yeah, they, they should be slaves. That's, that's the way it is. And that's not great. So, oh, he also, he argued that slavery was beneficial to the slave because the slave couldn't reason and therefore to be under the control of someone who could is better for the slave and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, if, if you're a human being who has no capacity to, to think for yourself, then you're better off being enslaved. And uh, it's uh, pretty, pretty wretched. And of course, it, it served his interests, right? Because to be alleged aristocracy, you needed slavery. And of course, you ended up, uh, he ended up crippling the economy, right? You can't have a modern economy if you have slaves. Because if you invest your money in slaves, you don't want labor-saving devices at all. So that's not great. His argument regarding ethics, how oh, it's just a bunch of, it's the adjective arguments, you know. The important thing in life is to be virtuous and, and have the beauty of truth and reason and courage and excellence and honesty. And blah, blah, blah. it's just a bunch of positive nouns and adjectives that you just swirl together in this weird broth of vague enticement. And it's diets for thin people. Uh, if you really care about being honest, then you're going to pursue these theories of ethics. But the whole, the whole point of virtue is to give you defense against evildoers, first and foremost, right? Which is why UPB clarifies uh, evil moral formulations, i.e. formulations that create rules, thou shalt not steal, and then create exceptions. These people must steal. So if you don't give people clear ways to identify evil moral theories, which is the really the only real dangerous predator in the universe that we know of. The most dangerous predator in the universe is false moral ideals. Because you can defend yourself against individual criminals, but you can't defend yourself against brutally enforced mass hysteria moral absolutes that are evil, right? Unjust laws and so on. And you can't defend yourself against those. So Aristotle didn't give you the tools to accurately identify immorality. Uh, Aristotle, you know, the sort of relationship to uh, his relationship to pederasty, which we talked about before, 
it's it's pretty rough. Uh, it's pretty rough. So Aristotle, um, uh, so Socrates and Plato relished the uh, a romance between uh, adult males and boys, but they considered it a failure to contain appetite if you actually had sex with these boys. Uh, it was a platonic relationship and so on. Uh, Aristotle, again, it's hard to know, all bunch of notes, but um, here's a, a quote from Aristotle. And the lawgiver has devised many wise measures to secure the benefit of moderation at table and the segregation of the women in order that they may not bear many children, for which purpose he instituted association with the male sex. And so, yeah, he's saying that it, you, know, you, you, you have sex with men so that you don't have too many children. And the male sex, he didn't say men, so the male sex, and of course, given that children were married off and uh, physical beauty, remember, in, in, in Athens, uh, the, 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 uh, in the Olympic Games, the athletes all competed in the nude and they trained in the nude and there was a lot of nudity around and the male form was considered beautiful and the female form was just for procreation. So um, is he talking about the ancient man-boy love thing? Well... He certainly wasn't opposing it and seemed to view it as a positive thing, so that's not uh, particularly great. Okay, last thing I wanted to mention, and it's the thing I said that I feel not particularly super smart for not really pointing out low these many years, but the argument of the forms, okay, you have questions about it. So, And, and it's good to have questions about it because it's a very interesting and compelling theory. And the idea that you can just introspect to get to the truth rather than having the hard labor of going out and observing things is great. Also, if you just introspect, then you can create contradictory realms which serve those in power, which is, that's what they want, right? They want camouflage, right? The, the people, the human predators want camouflage. They want the people in power. They want camouflage. So they want philosophers to create realms of identity and the opposite of identity and call it consistency so that they can rule and people aren't going to say, hey, why are you who's just a man in charge over me? So it's really tempting to go deep into yourself. But there's a kind of vanity, right? It's a kind of vanity because there is no truth within. Because truth is what you say about reality. There is no truth within at all. So what is the purpose of a well? The purpose of a well is to get you water. Is there any purpose to a well where you cannot get the water? No. That's just a hole in the ground. It may be a used to be a well or there's no water there anymore or the bucket's broken and you can't fix it or whatever it is, right? The purpose of a well is to get you water. The purpose of truth is to identify things in reality. And so if the truth is within, that's like saying there's a well that's there to get you water but the water always has to stay at the bottom of the well and you can't access it. But then it's not a well. It's not, it's not truth anymore. It's just mental self-masturbation or whatever you want to call it, but it's not, not truth. So I used to occasionally have people who would call into my show with claims of psychic powers. And I would say, oh, you have psychic powers. That's fantastic. Um, tell me something about myself that you couldn't possibly know. And whenever you provide an empirical test for bullshit artists who claim to have specialness which they don't have to earn or prove... I'm special because I have psychic powers. Oh, can you prove them? It doesn't work that way. They always say the same thing. It doesn't work that way. So they have this snobby, annoying, 
superior smugness about, well, you just don't understand the chaos of how this, I can't just will it that way. It's not that, I mean, it's not a pet that I can just tell it to do whatever I want. And it's not like your arm and you can make it lift. So they get very condescending and hostile because, you know, people want to feel special, but they don't want to do stuff that make them special. They just want to be special. Uh, a lot of people just want to be special by bullshitting, right? This virtual signaling or special signaling is another kind of thing. So fundamental test. Plato says, truth is in the realm of the forms. Truth is eternal and unchanging. Okay. Which means that he must have, how, he must have found truths independent of his day through introspection, through his process of going deep into yourself and this abstract reason, which is basically the opposite of reason because it allows for contradictions both within its own entities and with the actual empirical world. So if the truth is within and the truth is independent of time and truth is eternal, then the simple test is I can determine things that are true for all time through introspection. I can get the truth of things independent of empirical observation. Okay, that's great. Fantastic. Okay, so then we look through all of Plato's writings and we say, okay, what truths does he have that he couldn't possibly have gotten at the time through empirical observation? Did he write down E equals MC squared? Did he write down a theory of atoms? Did he correctly identify any parts of the table of elements? And of course the answer is no. Strangely enough, despite the fact that Plato claims to have a portal to omniscience, in a sense, or a portal to immortal knowledge. Strangely enough, weirdly enough, Plato did not produce any arguments that were not available to his empirical senses at the time. Or any facts, let's say. Arguments, yes, he created some arguments. Let's be more refined in particular and say, did Plato produce any facts based upon his claim that he knew the truth because of his study, internal study of the forms? Did he arrive at any facts that were not available to him at the time? No. It's the greatest repudiation of the forms that I think exists. That Plato did not produce any facts that it would have been impossible to him to, for him to produce through the evidence of the senses. Because if you go into the realm of the forms, matter has a form Science has a form, scientific relationships, scientific facts, scientific equations, all have forms. So in, the, in your delving into the realm of the forms, you should have come across E equals MC squared because it's an eternal truth. It's an eternal relation, truth of the relationship between matter and energy. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. That's in the realm of the forms. Evolution. Theory of evolution is in the realm of the forms. The inverse square law. Second law of thermodynamics, they're all there in the realm of the forms. And Plato, in saying, I reject empiricism, I'm going to get the truth from the realm of the forms, did he discover one truth, one fact, that he could not have had because he was in the realm of the forms? He did not. It's not one thing in any of Plato's writings that was not a fact that was available to him through the evidence of the senses in his time. Ah, but through the burrowing into your own innards, you get to the eternal truths, the eternal perfect facts of the universe. Okay, did you, can you pull one back that wasn't available empirically at the time? No? That's bullshit. Oh, you see, you know what Plato would say. You know what Plato would say. <laughs> oh, you, you, you want me to provide 
a fact independent of empirical data because I claim that I have access to facts independent of empirical data? You want, you want me to actually supply that which I claim I have access to? You know, if, if, I, if you're some primitive guy, you come through a time portal, you come to me and I say, I have the ability to uh, uh, phone someone and get, a fa- get them to talk to me from a great distance, right? Oh, can you prove it? Okay, here, I'll put this on speakerphone, dial someone and they're not in the room, whatever, right? Oh, you, you take someone or you take a pygmy from the jungle and you bring him to your house and, and, and you leave a cell phone with his mom in the jungle and you say, I have the ability to show your mom in a little window and talk to her even though she's thousands of miles away. He says, oh yeah, show me. And then you dial and you've taught her how to answer the phone and you have a conversation so you can prove it, right? Even though it seems magical and impossible to the pygmy, you can dial his mother and you can show that it works. You can prove, right? I have the ability to talk to somebody who's 2,000 miles away and show them too. I can see them even though they're 2,000 miles away. Says, this is impossible. And you dial and you can know, prove it, right? Because you can show what seems impossible to people based upon their knowledge. So if you're going to make a claim that you have access to universal, perfect knowledge, independent of time, eternal, absolute, but you can't provide one thing. You say, oh, I have access to novel to knowledge independent of the senses. Okay, can you give me an example of the knowledge that you've gained independent of the senses? No. Because Plato couldn't provide you one thing, and not one person who's ever claimed this higher realm has come back with anything useful. They don't come back with the germ theory. They don't come back with, uh, here's how to make antibiotics. They don't come back with new laws. They don't come back with, with new physical properties. They don't come back with Fermat's last theorem. They don't, the proof thereof. Like, they don't come back with anything. It's all bullshit. It's contemptible bullshit that serves two things. The individual's vanity, because they don't have to submit themselves to, and their ego, their rampant, rabid ego. They don't have to submit it to reason and evidence. And they serve power, because they allow for opposite exceptions to universal rules. The contradiction there, too. Opposite exceptions to universal rules. All mammals are living, but some mammals are not living. All must obey the law, but some can create the law. Thou shalt not steal, but some must steal. And if you were to go to Plato, you know exactly what he would say. If you could resurrect him and say, hey, you claim to have knowledge of universal truth independent of the senses, but you never wrote anything down that wasn't available to you through the evidence of the senses. There was no truth that was outside your time, although you claimed to have access to truth outside your time, because it's eternal, right? You claimed that you, you reject science. You go to the absolute, you reject empirical evidence. The real science is the forms. And the forms describe things perfectly that exist in the world. Okay, did you come back with any physical laws, physical properties, mathematical, you name it, anything, anything, anything that you didn't already have through the evidence of the senses? Well, you know exactly what he would say, right? Hey, man, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> 